Taken all by itself, Jean-Marie Tenno's 1996 film, Clando, is, I think, a really profound contribution to post-colonial filmmaking. But it becomes uh, interesting in its own way when set, as it is in this course, in relation to a series of other films about colonialism, memory, and uh, the post-colonial state. I'm thinking in particular about the relationship of Clando to the two uh, Usman Samban films we watched, Black Girl and Mandabi, and the way in some ways I think Clando is a, is a response to those two films, not a response in terms of being uh, something that, that tries to confront those films or critique those films or offer a counterpoint to those films about colonialism and its aftermath, but instead is, I think, a revisit of those very same themes. When we think about Black Girl, uh, Samban is thinking about and talking about and directing our attention towards the, uh, the lingering psychological effects of colonialism in terms of its, its, of its uh, psychic affects. That is, how we think and feel or how the how uh, post-colonial subjects think and feel about the col the colonial nation, the colonizing nation, and that's really the black girl's fantasy, right? That the, that's why the film is about you know one person and about her own imagination of of what France is, what Senegal is, and what it means to go from Senegal to France, and how colonialism really has its sort of hangover in that moment, and it carries over into the psychological structure of Dioma in the film, and um, of course ends in her suicide, which is that France is this poison, and uh, when ingested, right, that is living there, uh, after a life in Senegal, um, it is only uh, carries with it death and destruction. Mandabi is a very different kind of film, and I think is in some ways the preface to Clando, in that it is about Senegal's memory of colonialism, its memory of colonialism as built into its institutions of exploitation, of bureaucratic uh, indifference and bureaucratic cruelty which is dramatized in so many ways, just even in the dress of the main characters, of Ibrahima in his, um, of it, in his Senegalese uh, Muslim uh, wear, and the bureaucrats who wear, who dress in, in uh, Western-style suits and seek to always make him, as poor as he is, into a victim of the bureaucratic state. But one of the things that is really, uh, one of the features of Mandabi that I think is so important and carries over into uh, any kind of uh, analysis of Clando is that moment where Ibrahima's nephew sends money back. Of course, that's what Mandabi is. It's about this money order, right? That's the title. It's about this money order and Ibrahima's attempt to cash it and what it means in terms of its community and extended family and the bureaucratic state. And that's where it comes under all of the criticism. But there's a, it's almost like an interlude in the film, a pause in the film, an excursus in the film, where we see the nephew working in France. 
And he's sending this money back to support his family, but he's not sending it back as a middle class or, you know, anything even like that worker in France. He is instead a a street sweeper. It is, you know, what we would call in the United States in 21st century, a minimum wage worker at best. But he sends every spare penny he can back. And so in that way, I think, you know, the the little glimpse into the nephew's life is this other dimension of, of what black girl can't because of the plot line that ends in suicide, but it can't document, which is the life of the one who travels abroad. Right, the one who lives abroad and still has obligations to uh, the home state, to the home country. And we don't get a lot of that story of the nephew, but it's enough to sort of dangle out there as a teaser. But in both Samban films, that sense of moving to Europe, whether you think of it as expat, migration, exile, however one describes it, whatever term one attaches to it, we don't get a sense of a vibrant life, right? And a life that has existential significance in a diaspora, right? Living in Europe. And that's what we get in Clando, right? That Clando is, you know, as the title again, you know, which just means an unlicensed taxi. um, What we get is a story of of Sogi, who, you know, uh, has lost his job as a computer programmer, where he was just, you know, working in an office. Um, he's uh, jailed and beaten uh, because he had made photocopies of a revolutionary or just an opposition political party flyer. Right. So he loses his job. He's unable to to get it back, which was his you know, his access to something more than a hard scrabble sort of day-to-day hustle life. So he becomes an unlicensed taxi driver. And then the film, you know, through various kinds of of machinations, uh, he ends up moving to Germany. And when he's in Germany, he's a part of this entire expat or exile community. Right. And it's an interesting community to me because what it's trying to do is recreate a sense of home in Germany. It has all the group uh, get the group gets together, whether they're all Cameroonian or if they're, uh, you know, uh, Pan-African, Sub-Saharan African is unclear. Although I think at moments we hear people speaking English, which suggests uh, you know, that there's, that these are multiple nations, right? Anglophone and Francophone, um, African nations in Germany. And they create a, a sense of community through money sharing. They lend each other money that they've pooled together and basically create their own sort of shadow system of support and uplift. But what's important to me is that in this really forced and fabricated way and, and, and Jean-Marie makes it very clear in the film that it is fabricated. They keep calling each other family. They keep saying unity, we are family. They aren't, of course, blood related. They are instead a chosen uh, family, a chosen sense of community brought together simply by the shared experience of being African in Germany, right? Of being, of sharing that sense of exile as a condition of their very own being. So when 
Sobge arrives in Germany, he's plugged immediately into this system. And I think that 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 place in this system of expats is really important because what it highlights for me is this thing that structures the entirety of the film. There are two things I think that structure the entirety of the film. One is what are we to do about the post-colonial state that has fallen into such a state of corruption, right? That's the political message of the film. But there's the existential dimension of the film that grows out of that. And that's the question of home. What does it mean to have a sense of home and to lose it? What Sogi has in Cameroon is a life that slowly degenerates because of the corruption of the post-colonial state, degenerates as a condition of home, just as the state itself degenerates as opposed all, all of its post-colonial hopes. Because the post-colonial state is defined in many ways simply by hope. This idea that without the yoke of the colonizer, what could we be as a nation? That's the story of Cameroon, right? It's It's you know, the independence of its two parts in 1960 and 1961 that then becomes, you know, the unification of the country, uh, Francophone and Anglophone, as what we now know as the nation of Cameroon. And so it's that sense that, you know, in the post-colonial moment, you could make a state that would be a home. It would be linguistically a home. It would be racially a home. It would be administratively and governmentally and culturally a home. And so the promise of the post-colonial state that is then, you know, two, three decades later uh, in a state of massive degeneration is not simply a political problem. And I like that Tenno is really clear that it's not simply a political problem that it is an existential problem because the post-colonial state is not an abstraction. It's actually the embodiment of the hope and um, aspiration of formerly colonized people, right? And under colonialism, the entire nation is a kind of open-air prison. That's what colonialism does to a country. It makes it a place of confinement. But that hope when uh, a wash in the levels of corruption that Cameroon in the 80s and, and 70s, 80s, and 90s, uh, the way it suffered under that level of corruption, you know, that Sobgi really embodies that sense of complete and existential despair and loss of any sense of place. And that loss of a sense of place is dramatized so well in in his uh, time in Cameroon, right, where he loses his job, right, which he's just an everyday person. He's not a revolutionary. He just simply agrees with some of his revolutionary friends or opposition friends, you know, whether you want to call him revolutionary or, or oppositional um, is, you know, of, I think just a mere vocabulary choice. It's a choice that comes with a penalty because he's caught making these out of basically out of peer pressure, making these, uh, yeah, I think it's 10,000 photocopies for these leaflets to be distributed ahead of an election. And he's beaten, right? And he's beaten in a very specific way. That is that the, the, in the, uh, interrogation scene, uh, the interrogator, um, uh, beats his feet with a stick. 
so much so that he can't walk. And that's an important way to dramatize his incarceration and his interrogation. Because it's like what the interrogator wants to do is remove Sogi's ability to even stand on the ground of Cameroon, right? That he's not able to be stable, right? To have root or roots in this place that used to be home, that was supposed to be in its post-colonial moment, a deepening sense of home and a sense of attachment to nation and state and place. Now in the beating, he's lost that. And so he's lost that sense of a wider belonging, a wider sense of root, a wider sense of being able to stand in this place and call it his own. And then he goes home after his jail term, after he's freed from jail, um, which is his last remaining hope for being or having a sense of home, which is the house he shares with his wife. And the way that's dramatized as he returns is, is their... Uh, attempt to have sex and he can't he's rendered impotent by his by the his experience in jail not as a result of the beating physically but as a result of the beating and that incarceration for his psyche that it removes this sense of any kind of intimacy including nation and wife and that sense of total loss of home then becomes the rationale or the motivation for his exile. And in his time in Germany, right, where he's looking for the same kinds of work, right, to figure out what his next steps are as a person, right? Does he want to return to Cameroon or make a new life in Germany? There's initially, <coughs> through this uh, rhetoric of family and unity that the expat community has, a promise of a sense of home. But that rapidly falls apart, not really rapidly, but it falls apart in, in, a, in a methodical way. Um, but he also, like he had tried to establish some sense of home through a sexual relationship with his wife, he tries to find that other sense of home, I think, through a sexual relationship with Irene, who's uh, a German woman, right? And there he's able to have a sexual relationship, or at least we're led to believe so. But it, that also degenerates. And it degenerates because there's something that Irene doesn't understand about him. It's not that she has a sort of racial misunderstanding or there's like a racial gap that he's black, she's white. It's For me, I think it's really important that it's not that trite that she actually doesn't fetishize him as uh, on racial terms, but she does fetishize him on political terms. After they have sex for the first time, the next morning uh, she wakes, they wake up and she asks him about what happened to his feet. And that's what leads to the memory sequence where we learn that he was beaten in his interrogation. And what that leads to is this political fetishization of him by Irene. And it's a political fetishization because she works in an office that uh, aids asylum seekers, but also is decorated with revolutionary posters from uh, around the Atlantic world, including a, a shot which uh, uh, that I believe is 
uh, a poster of um, of uh, Nicaraguan women in the Sandinista Revolution, a free Leonard Peltier poster, and others. So she herself is a revolutionary and has a global sense of revolution. And the fact that he has suffered physical harm and violence as a result of his own work in Cameroon leads her to imagine him to be a certain kind of political person. And so that moment where his connection to that intimacy of home is lost in the moment that she confronts him, which is really uh, the beginning of the conclusion of the film, where she says, you know, this expat community of which you are a part, everybody just talks and they just produce petitions, but nobody listens to petitions. People have to take action. And it's important for me that Irene is right about that. She's not wrong, and Tenno doesn't want us to think she's wrong. But what she doesn't understand is this really important connection between politics and the existential. That she thinks of it at the political level, that you want that level, of, that, that kind of political change in Cameroon, you have to go be willing to die. You have to go fight an armed struggle against a corrupt government. You have to be willing to die. Perhaps you have to be willing to kill. There has to be some sense of confrontational struggle that's not embodied in a petition. That's nothing that exiled expats can do. And when he con she confronts him about this, he pushes back simply with, you know, you don't understand what that means. And that that's the cleavage between the existential and the political. But it also jolts his conscience, right? And it makes him, uh, brings him to this other memory uh, which I believe is also a dream, right? It's memory of a dream where he's on a bus and they're in chains. And there's this, he describes them as a maniacal bus driver. And the bus driver is, um, uh, you know, a, a figure for the corrupt state, for the corrupt post-colonial state. And um, Sogi says, you know, we have, they have a gun in the bus, right? And the gun's pointed at the driver, and he's like, well, we had this choice in this dream. We could either shoot the bus driver and die a quick death, but kill off, you know, the, the, the maniacal leader. Or we could live and die a slow death. And that binary is what structures his imagination of Cameroon, right? And it structures his imagination of Cameroon because he knows from his interrogation, from his experience in jail and conversation with people in jail who are actual uh, opposition leaders and revolutionaries, that that revolutionary or oppositional work will lead to death, right? It's, it's something that the government will find you and kill you. But he also understands, especially when he's let out of jail, that the entire country is a cell. He stands, uh, you know, he confronts an old friend and he says, you know, um, the, the friend says, well, you're not in jail anymore. This is great. And he goes, this intersection is my cell. That idea that the entire corrupt post-colonial state has become exactly what the colonial state was, an open-air prison for everyone within its borders. And in that is only a slow death. So in a place where the choice is either slow death or you, you, know, you take up armed struggle and die, right, a fast death, when you couple that with 
this this deep intimate uh, revelation of his own impotence and his own inability to make his house a home with his wife it makes the film deeply melancholic about what it even means to be Cameroonian and what it means to try to assert oneself in Cameroon to imagine a, a new state, a new future, new possibilities. There's a sense in which there are no possibilities imaginable. For all the posters in Irene's office, there is no imagination even among the expats of home, being home, like what that would look like. That colonialism and the degeneration of the post-colonial state have the same effect of making the borders of the nation an open-air cell. But Germany can't be that either. There's that moment where he's walking out with, with Rigoberto. And Rigoberto, uh, he's trying to encourage Rigoberto to go home. Rigoberto is like, well, if I go home, my father, who's in ill health, will die. And I'm all of a sudden responsible for 100 family members. And then he looks over at his German family. He points to an apartment. We don't see it, but he says, my wife and two kids are up there. My kids are learning to be good Germans. And there's this sense of Rigoberto's homelessness, that he doesn't have a home in Germany. He doesn't have a home in Cameroon. And that's the moment where Sogi has that realization that his attempt to make a home in Germany is... is, is um, is its own kind of hopeless effort, whether it's with Irene or with the expat community. So there's this image that concludes the film that I think is really uh, interest, fascinating and important, where we see uh, the camera is fixed on the front of the car as it drives down a sort of crowded street, and we hear the voiceover of Irene and Soki talking, and and she, he calls her comrade, and she says, you have to earn that title. Like, you have to take action to be my comrade. It's all very playful, but also very serious. And then she says, well, we'll just have to wait. And he, uh, he says, I don't want to wait. And the film ends. But the film ends with the car arriving at the end of the street. And the end of the street is blocked, is, is, is a... Uh, an intersection where he can't go straight forward he has to turn either right or left and the car just idles there and the film closes and that closing of the film i think is is it's deeply ambiguous but in the best and most productive sense because it's making us ask if there is no home in the, the degenerated post-colonial state there is no home in exile where is one to turn? Where does one go? This is a deeply melancholic ending, but it's also um, a deeply honest ending. That is understanding how in 1996, when the film comes out, so we just imagine the 1990s, how you know 30-something years after independence, the open-air cell that the nation is now is what it always was and what the existential meaning of that because the political meaning of that is clear it's corruption it's a lack of democratic representation it's a lack of full participation in the nation right the condo right the the 
unlicensed taxi is an example of that. It's like you don't pay taxes into the state. A police officer makes this clear at the beginning. And therefore, you don't support the state system. You don't support the you know, civil servants you know, who make the country run. Right? But you're an unlicensed taxi because you're simply trying to feed your family. Right? This is, this is what Sobke says to the police officer when he's confronted. I'm just trying to make a living. I'm just trying to feed my family. Can you please leave me alone and just let me be? He can't do that because the nation has to have a higher aspiration, but it's a degenerated post-colonial nation, an open-air cell in which that's what life means, is to simply try to feed your family. And so in the end for me, Klando follows up on so much of what was in Samban, in that little moment in Mandabi of the nephew being abroad and, and in Black Girl of Dioma being abroad, right? In exile in some way, trying to find a new kind of life and being unable to find a sense of home. Klando really gives us, I think, existential depth to that problem. But then, I think very much unlike Mandabi and Black Girl, it doesn't, it's outlived a sense of post-colonial hope. That I think Samban's still thinking like, well, the natural communism of the poor, right? Whether it's the popular school in Black Girl or the communal values that Ibrahima and his family embody and that are lauded at the end of the film as the hope against the, demo, uh, the, the um, bureaucracy of the post-colonial state that really just replicates colonial bureaucracy. That sense of a lingering hope that there is a force sort of out there that could counter everything that the post-colonial state and its colonial hangover um, embody uh, to the point of violence, that's gone by the time we get to Klando. Right. And what we have is that sense of degeneration in which you can no longer simply say, well, this is a colonial hangover because 30 years is too long to keep calling it a hangover. At this point, it is a feature, feature of the state itself. And that's a political problem. But it is also, and this is so important, I think, to emphasize, and I think Tenno does such an amazing job of demonstrating and showing us this over an hour and a half of film, in Klando, that it is an existential problem, that it is a problem of not belonging, it is a problem of a lack of sense of intimacy of body to self, body to other, body to others. It is a sense of being estranged and unat home in a place that ought to be one's home. And that seeking it elsewhere requires, in Germany in this case, requires such fabrication and over-the-top sort of sort of performance that it's you know there's something very sad about the exiles and their attempt to create a sense of home that then when you return back to Cameroon gets doubled in its sadness to the point of melancholy right something you don't even mourn is just a, a dark cloud of sadness that animates the end of the film and animates its beginning because that sense of not being at home in what was promised to be your home, of what one hoped to be a home. That's where Klando, for me, becomes an exercise simultaneously in nihilism, that the post-colonial nation-building project is hopeless and meaningless. But it is also, for me, 
uh, aspirational in that moment where he wants the name Comrade. And he's like, you know what? We do have to find a way, however impossibly or possibly, find a way for that political intervention that makes an existential connection to place, an existential connection to what has become a degraded and, and, and debased sense of post-colonial hope, to find ways of reintroducing that, such that the very existence of post-colonial subjects has substance, has meaning, and has a sense of connection to one another, sense of connection to nation, and therefore a sense of connection to the future. Because in the end, what that existential despair that comes from a degenerated politics, what that existential despair is ultimately about, is a sense that there is no future. That all the future is, is a repetition of despair and melancholy. Clando ends at that crossroads, right? Do you go right or do you go left? What do you see when you turn? We don't know. But that's why the film, in the end, is made in the interrogative. What is possible? We don't have an answer, but we have to ask the question, what is possible and how do we pursue that as a possibility, as post-colonial subjects, as the people, as working people, not as bureaucrats, not as people in power, not as fabricated, romanticized revolutionaries. But where is the common person's intervention in this? That's an open question in the film, and it remains an open question, I think, across these films dealing with colonial memory and its aftermath, and post-colonial nation-building as an existential project.